I'm Richard McVie. I'm one of the professors of accounting at LSE. Uh, we always start at five past to allow the, the students and the faculty to get from whichever lecture they were at before. So it's uh, in the blood that if it's two o'clock, we start at five past. So, uh, I am also, another of my hats is academic advisor to ICAEW, and our speaker is a member of the council of SEMA, uh, so I guess we're here to even out the uh, external sponsors of the day. Uh, you've all read uh, Robin's biog, and so I'm not going to say any more than that uh, his consultancy spans uh, major private sector and public sector organisations, just as our programme does today, uh, but this afternoon he's going to focus on the National Health Service. Robin. Well, good afternoon, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to join you guys today. Uh, it's appreciated. Uh, I've been a long-time supporter of Marg, uh, but normally I have to say I've been down there rather than up here, and I have to tell you, being up here, it looks rather scary looking down at this crowd. I'm glad to see it's such a full room. It's great. It shows the interest that Marg generates, and uh, all credit to LSE and all those who have been involved in organising it. Uh, as you probably gather, I'm not an academic, and the shorthand for that means I don't do literature. <laughs> no references at all, maybe just one or two. Um, but I'm a practitioner, and basically my career has been specialising in costing, cost management, performance man management, and all things related. And in my mind, it's been a... Sorry, like that. If you can't hear me at the back, flare your arms, right? And I'll try and respond. Is that any better? Okay. Can you hear better now? Too much. Sorry. Right. My, te Sorry. my technician here is... Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Yeah. Let's try, let's try again. Okay. You okay at the back? Fantastic. Good. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I specialise in cost and cost management, performance management, and it's been a period of great change. And just to give you a, a very personal perspective on that change that's happened in my career, if somebody had approached me when I left university some years ago and said, Robin, you're going to become a sort of specialist in costing, cost management and things related, I'm probably going to commit, going to commit suicide. Because all that time ago, that was the value it was adding. But I have to tell you, it's fundamentally different. It's about understanding what really makes an organisation tick. And that has huge implications for decision making and for the value that is created in those organisations. And that, to me, is kind of exciting. Now, my wife does accuse me of having an anorak which I suppose there's some truth in that, but that's me, we all take our own different journeys in life. But what's particularly interesting, I think, at the moment is when a, a new discrete sector wakes up to the potential of some of what management accounting can bring to bear, new ideas and so on. And you know, that's exactly what we're seeing in places like the NHS, because you know, in a sector you see early adopters, you see how ideas are diffused across that sector, uh, so as new ideas you know, move from one organisation to another to another. I've long believed that you know, life is a normal distribution. You have the early adopters, then the masses catch up, and then there's a, there's a sort of tag along behind. It also gives you a chance to think about the determinants of success. Why is it that some adopters, early adopters, have a great success, and others actually have less than that? What makes the difference between one and the other? And even within an organisation, how do these ideas evolve? We saw some great examples from this morning from John and the work done at Rotherham, and you know, I was actually partially aware of what they'd done, but I was actually really quite impressed. 
be interesting to actually understand how those ideas are diffusing across that trust itself, because all these trusts are large organisations in their own right. Well, this change is coming to the NHS out of nowhere at speed. Ten years ago, cost was a four-letter word in the NHS, and for many, it still is. But I have to tell you, there are people who are being to engage with the ideas that we'd all classify as management accounting big time. And so I think it's a great opportunity for research. I really do. There's so much we can learn from this to better understand not just what is happening, but why. So my objective this afternoon is to try and give you an overview of what's happening in the NHS from a management accounting perspective and try and give you some sense of what I see as being its direction of travel. And just as a, a, a side swipe before we go any further, I have to say it's been an absolute privilege working in the NHS. We see lots, lots of stick um, coming from the press about... Uh, all things that go wrong there, but there are some brilliant, very bright people there doing some great work who uh, are often unsung heroes, but many of them are pushing back the boundaries, not just in technical innovations like we said this morning, but in the world of management accounting too. Now, we all know the NHS, it's in the ether, but do you know how big it is? Have you got any idea at all? Just a few background stats just to get us going. When it was founded, in current day money, it cost nine billion pounds a year, okay, 1948. How much does it cost now? 100 billion pounds. You wonder why the politicians worry about it? This has been growing in real terms, I'm told, at 4% per annum over that period. So this is you know, a huge chunk of money. It's bigger than many complete economies of countries around the world. This is a massive enterprise. Um, it treats, I don't know, one million patients every 36 hours, I'm told. 1.4 million GP visits a year, a, a week, sorry, 700,000 dental visits a, a week, 3,000 3, heart operations a week. And it, the numbers just are all massive. Now, it's all structured into 10 strategic health authorities. There are around about 167 acute trusts. There are about sort of 58 mental health trusts. These numbers keep changing from one month to another. There are 151 private, primary care trusts through whom the money flows, certainly at the moment, for commissioning purposes, but also for the provision of community care. And there are 10,000 GP practices. 10,000 of them. You wonder where your 100, million, 100 billion pounds is going? That's where it's all going, right? So that's just by way of background. Now, for quite a long period of time, it was structured in the following way. You had the Department of Health on high, uh, who devolved responsibility for making things happen down to the 10 strategic health authorities, who then passed the money down to the primary care trusts. And they then divvied the money up amongst the various players in their space, the acute trust, mental health trust, primary care trust, and so it goes on. That's not a complete listing, but it's sufficient for the purpose this afternoon. So essentially, centrally organized, centrally funded, block funding of money coming from a top down, and nobody having the faintest idea about whether it's delivering value for money or not. All people knew was that it wanted, it's like a big, Animal. It kept, wanting, kept on wanting more and more money. So it's been facing some major, major challenges, which I just want to sort of touch on very briefly. This is one of the most over-regulated sectors on the planet. And I, I'm not trying to list, give you a complete listing here, but you have the Department of Health that has its requirements. The SHAs have their own. The Care Quality Commission has theirs. NICE have their requirements. Monitor, the regulator for foundation trusts, has its requirements. And in fact, you very often you'll go to a trust and look at sort of how they manage their performance. You find they do all their performance management for external parties, none for themselves, which is kind of worrying all by itself. 
And what we have is an organisation with a lot of very strong and parochial interests. Think about the key players in an NIH trust. These are people who are very bright, very well paid, very strong sense of their self-worth and ego, right? And they're not always on the same hymn sheet, even amongst themselves. And quite often, they like what they've got. They don't really want to see that change at all, even if it's in the patient's interest. So it's an interesting brood that we're sort of talking up here. And because of you know, the history about sort of government trying to impose management, that has often meant that sort of some clinicians have become quite disengaged. And literally all they do is the day job, treating patients. They don't actually get involved. They don't want to. It doesn't feel that it's part of you know, their job anymore, which, of course, is, fun, is a real problem all by itself. And clearly there's permanent upward pressure on costs. So new drugs, we're all living longer, uh, new treatments and so on, they all cost more money. None of this comes for free. So it sounds great, really, at living longer, but there are consequences, cost consequences in particular. Now, the government has said, right, that we're going to protect the front line of the NHS. And I believe they actually do mean that. But they've also said, by the way, that over a four-year period, you've got to save £20 billion. £5 billion a year across the NHS, that's about 5% for every single trust in real terms. Oh, and by the way, don't actually let patients suffer either. So, okay, that's an interesting one, that. And you know, they're also being asked, on top of that, to undergo a major restructuring about how things are funded. So PCTs and SHA is going to get scrapped. The money will flow through things that haven't even been invented yet, called GP consortia. And not even all GPs want to be part of this. So, again, it's an interesting dynamic going on there, which is playing out as we speak. So this, uh, but that's going to be in place, unless something very fundamental changes by 2013 and uh, 2014. So lots of major challenges. And there's some serious issues to contend with along the way. First of all, the culture clashes between different groups. You imagine that everybody is there with a prime focus on the patient, and I have to tell you, that's largely true, but also you find that it niggles. So different groups, you find that surgeons and physicians actually don't get on that well. They're completely different. They're from completely different planets. Um, it's not they're all they're all nice people and so on, but they have different interests. Um, also, there's, a, there's a, this notion of remembered pain and history and inertia. Some pretty bad things that have been done in the NHS in the interest in the sort of name of progress in years gone by, and people remember that. Maybe wrongly, but they did. Colours how they view future changes, and that's part of the reason why you have a certain amount of inertia and reaction to the proposed changes that are on the table right now. A lot of vested interests, we've referred to that already. Um, also, the skill mix of what's required is a bit of a problem. This isn't always, you don't always have the right number of people with the right skills in the right place at the right time. I guess that's a fact of life in any organisation, but it's particularly so in certain parts of the NHS. And also, this whole notion of you know, accountability and ownership, it can be so bad, for example, there's one particular trust who shall remain nameless, where none of the clinicians are prepared to volunteer to be director of yes, one of the directorates, one of the specialties there, even though they're paid, being paid extra money. So where's the ownership there? It's not. They just want to come along, do the day job, pick up a shed load of money, go home, look after the kids. Well, that doesn't feel particularly responsible to me, but that's just an illustration of some of the issues that some trusts, not all, but some trusts are having to contend with. And a few observations before we get into the meat of it. Hospitals are just that. They are large and extremely complex places, probably more complex than any other type of organisation that we can conceive of. And I sort of 
didn't really understand that when I first started working with NHS trusts. But if you think about the serious complexity of I mean, yeah, the pathology, the radiology, the theatres, the wards, the nursing staff, all the different interest groups, the different specialties, the fact that somebody can go there not with a, broke, with a broken leg, but with sort of, uh, comorbidities. They might be old, they might be overweight, they might have sort of high blood temperature, blood, sorry, blood pressure, and so it goes on. And you know, to get people well, all these things have to mesh in a fairly seamless way from a patient perspective. So quite a difficult beast to manage, even on a good day. Also, they're dangerous places. When I first started working with the NHS Trust, uh, a particular finance director who I respect hugely took me to one side one day and said, just as I said, Robin, hospitals are dangerous places. I said, what do you mean? People come here to get better, don't they? He said, no, no, of course they do, but they're dangerous places. I said, what do you mean? Well, people die here. Oh, yeah, know that, but no, they die when they shouldn't. Yeah? They came in to get better, they went out dead. You know, they are dangerous places. And, you know, this same uh, finance director, he told me, that, and I'm not going to tell you which one this is, uh, but he has a card which he carries in his wallet. Basically, says, if I have a heart attack, do not take me to this hospital, this hospital, this one, <laughs> but I will go to these. So, so he knows which trusts are ones that he puts his trust in and others that he wouldn't touch with a barge pole. Do you have a card like that? Do you know which? Well, that information is becoming available through information that's now becoming more public through Dr. Foster and others. I'm not going to go down that route, but... Okay. What this all means is that quality is absolutely a key issue. Quality for the patient in every respect. And you have to balance that about the fact that healthcare is expensive. It is a balancing act. And so how on earth do you actually sort of face up to these challenges? They are immense for anybody, even for the very best managers. So how do you improve efficiency? How do you improve effectiveness? How do you improve quality of patient outcome in a time of huge pressure when funding, frankly, is going down? Now, it may not be going down overall, but you know, if you're in a trust where you're required to at least break even and where some of the work that you're currently doing is going to be reallocated to other players, like be done in the community and so on, your amount of work is going to go down. And because it's all on a payment by results basis, your income will go down, but your cost base won't. So hey, how are you going to handle that? It's conundrum. Now, people have talked a lot about using central targets, and this is very much the case in the Blair years. And there's been a lot of controversy about it. Some people you know, regard it as a good thing, and many regard it as a bad thing, because as with all targets, you can get dysfunctional behaviour. I just wanted to give you an example of why one particular target came into being. And the reasoning was, I think, quite sound, and it's had the right effect. Um, but it may have had some dysfunctional side effects along the way. Have you ever wondered, I mean, how many people in this audience have private health care? Hands up. So about a third. Thank you. Have you ever wondered why so many people have sort of private health care? Well, for a great many years, it used to be the case that you would have a, sort of a problem. You'd go to your GP, they'd say, you need to go and see a specialist. So that you'd get sort of sent off to a specialist in your local hospital. They'd look at you, a little bit like a plumber, they suck their teeth and say, oh, Mr. Ballas-Jones, that's a real problem. You need some fairly urgent treatment, but you know, that's the problem you've got there. And, yeah, I can fit you in in six months. But if you want to go private, I'll do you tomorrow. And you know, to be perfect, that is what was happening in an awful lot of trusts with a lot of surgeons, a lot of clinicians. Immoral? Of course it was. What 18 Weeks was intended to do was to say every patient has a right from the first, uh, first uh, visit to hospital to treatment of 18 weeks maximum. 
So it's intended to try and break that sort of, call it bad behavior, if you will. So it seems to have done that quite successfully. Whether or not there are better ways of doing it, I'm not the one to say. Others far wiser who can do that. Now, let me turn to something else. This particular quotation from a journalist called Dave West. Dave worked for the uh, Health Service Journal, and he wrote this in the middle of 2009. And all I really want you to focus on is that first line. NHS boards too often prioritise governance, finance, and targets above patient safety, the Commons Health Committee said today, 3rd of July. Why was that? Well, if you remember back, it was in the slightly before that, so the May-June time, that we had the mis- what was called the Mid-Staffs Crisis. Mid-Staffordshire Hospital had just been awarded Foundation Trust status. So they jumped through various hoops, they were given some freedom, some independence, because they could, had proven to the world, to the regulator, that they could manage themselves well. It then transpired that around about 500 patients in the previous three years had died unnecessarily in that trust. Now that, by any standards, is absolutely shocking. A lot of egg and a lot of faces of every single regulator caused absolute mayhem, as it damn well should. Okay? Because what you have there is a trust that was hell-bent on getting foundation trust status that was neglecting patients, especially in the A&E area. So a lot of, has been learned from that. Now, there have been two fundamental changes which I think I want to draw to your attention. And coincidentally, they both happened around 2004. Now, the first one is the change in the basis of regulation. Rather than sort of everybody, all trust reporting through the structure that I showed you just a few minutes ago, something was created called Monitor. Monitor is the regulator for what are called foundation trusts. Now, a foundation trust is very simply a trust that has proven that it can jump through a whole range of hoops to demonstrate to the regulator that they are capable of operating in an independent way. In the same year, the Department of Health changed the basis of funding for acute trusts from block grants to what they called payment by results. I'm going to spend a few minutes on each of these two subject areas. Monitor. Their vision, and this is straight from one of their uh, publications, their vision is an affordable, devolved healthcare system with patients choosing and commissioners purchasing high-quality healthcare from a range of providers who operate within a regulatory framework that incentivizes professional management and financial discipline. Their mission which flows from that directly to operate a transparent, right, important word there, and effective regulatory framework that incentivizes NHS foundation trusts to be professionally managed and financially strong and capable of delivering innovative services, right, that respond to the patient's and the commissioner's needs. Okay, so that's a little bit about monitor. They've served, that's from a document published, published in 2006. Now, an integral part of that, oh, by the way, one detail here, Monitor reports not to the Department of Health, it reports directly to Parliament. So this is a game-changing thing. Somebody has just changed here the rules of engagement. So if you can actually get foundation trust status, you're longer burdened with having to report through your SHA or your Department or to the Department of Health. You have much more freedom commercially than you ever would have done before, which is why it's an attractive option. Okay. Service line reporting. You may have heard this uh, referred to earlier on. Um, basically, this is uh, a way of looking at any organisation, any trust, 
as defined by Monitor. And basically, this is their words again. Service line reporting provides financial transparency, allowing the profitability of individual service lines or business units to be accurately assessed. Using this information for annual planning has been shown to deliver a number of benefits, including you know, greater engagement with clinicians, something which we'd already observed was lacking, greater understanding, easier, better prioritization of what's important, greater quantification of the operational challenges, etc., better strategic decision making, and development of so clear goals that link not just the financials, but the clinical and operational objectives. So, coherent management. So, you know, this is actually sort of monitor laying down what is required to run a foundation trust. And basically, they produced a toolkit. It was published in the autumn of 2006. You can find reference to it on their website. It's free. You can download it. It's dead easy. And in this toolkit, they talk about six different tools. I'm not going to ask you to look at the detail here. This is a sort of screenshot from uh, one of their brochures. But if that's not management accounting, nothing is, ever. It's understanding profitability, EBITDA. It's looking at variability of performance, looking at a whole bunch of things. So here you have the regulator saying, we're going to do this. Well, you're going to do this, more precisely, if you want to be a foundation trust. Now, in the beginning, it was optional. But the, the regulator then said, though, and if you ever sort of you, you go into deficit, if you ever sort of uh, stop performing and you haven't got this information, then where we tied you. And I actually heard them say that in a sort of major NHS conference. So here's you have the regulator driving the use of management accounting across NHS foundation trusts. Now that then leads to the next thing, it's service line management. It's basically what you do with service line reporting information. And Monitor talks about five enablers to service line management. Okay? And they, so they, and they first of all define it, say it's the equivalent of actually running a business unit within uh, a trust. Okay? That's all it is, nothing more, nothing, nothing less than that. So it's about having a sort of a, an organisation structure, capabilities, incentives and so on, in the way you'd find it in an ordinary commercial organisation. So it's not rocket science, it's bringing the commercial world into the NHS. Okay? And it's about being able to devolve responsibilities down to the clinician level, because that's where decisions are made. It's about having sort of, you know, a clear strategy, clear objectives. Now, in the commercial world, of course, wouldn't we always do that? Well, this is new for the NHS. It's about having an effective planning process. What the hell did they do before? Well, clearly, not what's being proposed now. It's about having, making sure the information is relevant to all the usual words, relevant, timely, and so on. Things that we'd normally expect of good management accounting. And finally, it's about having an effective performance management system. I'll go into that in a little bit more detail later on. Now, what Monitor also, I think, importantly recognises is this. That if this is going to be successful in terms of service line management, then it must integrate the ownership, this is ownership by clinicians, of those three areas. Clinical quality, operational effectiveness, and financial performance. Now, they did some survey work. They used McKinsey. They went to talk to a number of different hospital trusts on a pilot basis in early 2007. And the slide I'm going to show you now is just one of the outcomes from that. Now, don't try and read the detail, but what I have is on the left-hand side, you have those five enablers I referred to just a moment ago. Across the top, you have those three circles, right? Clinical quality, operational effectiveness, and financial performance. And what they tried to do in this pilot exercise was to make a, a, an assessment, a preliminary assessment, of how well these things came together. And all I'd like you to do is look at the amount of blue in each of those little circles like there. Okay? 
course, what you see is that under the clinical quality ones, there's a lot of blue there, which you know, as a, we're all potential patients, thank God for that. But there's precious little blue in the other two areas, and that really sort of almost makes the case for service line management. So this is the regulator driving how trusts are managed in a devolved basis. But that raises a question. What happens when a trust goes out and does its service line reporting in the way that Monitor prescribes, and the clinicians look at it, they scratch the surface and say, that's a load of rubbish. Because if you actually sort of base that service line reporting information on top-down apportionments, which is what a lot of trusts have done, the clinicians, who are all very bright people, they look at it and say, don't believe it. I can't, can't see where the logic sits behind these numbers. And they say, well, I'm not going to use it. There's one particular trust in the Northwest. Their finance team had five attempts at trying to produce decent quality service line reporting information. On every occasion, they got serious pushback from their clinical colleagues. And the problem was that you know, the clinicians, they are the most demanding audience for management accounting information on the planet. I mean, how many straight A's at A-level do you need to be a doctor these days? How many years at university to, to become a surgeon? Lots. Which is, you know, from my point of view, as a potential patient, a good thing. But they're bright people. They may not have had a financial education, but boy, do, they have, do the numbers feel right? They have a view. And if they don't feel right, they will not use them. And I can't actually blame them. Okay. What I'd like to do now is just pause on that subject and move across to payment by results. This was driven by the Department of Health because it wants to move away from block funding to a tariff-based approach. Um, so the implications are huge. So, for example, now you, a, a hospital provides somebody with a hip replacement 5,000 quid of income. Do it twice, you get 10,000 quid. That question that begs is, you know, is that enough to cover our costs? Or not? And if we don't know that, then how do we know, you know how we're doing? So it raises a whole range of absolutely valid uh, questions. Now, it also begs the question of how on earth are those tariffs set in the first place? And the method that the Department of Health uh, developed was called reference costing. This is the most hated methodology I've ever come across in my entire career. It's done once a year by every single trust. It's top-down, it's apportionment, Nobody understands it, nobody believes, believes it. It goes in about July time from every trust into a room populated by South Africans and Australians who spend hours in this dark room cranking the numbers. Now come a shed load of tariffs and nobody can explain where they came from or why they are as they are, but that's it. So not very satisfactory. So they got a lot of pushback, Department of Health, and they eventually twigged that actually they need a better approach Costing at the patient level. Actually, that's a misnomer. It's costing at the patient episode level, because that's the episode when you as a patient go into a hospital for a particular treatment. So the Department of Health put together some guidelines. Well, they didn't, actually. They nicked them from Australia. And uh, I'm going to give you just a very high-level, simplistic summary of what those guidelines look like. Essentially, patients go to a trust, to a hospital, because they want to get better. Statement of the obvious. To help people get better, the trust will spend a lot of money as captured in the general ledger. Now, the methodology suggests that you capture all theatre costs together in a, cost, in a bucket, a cost bucket called theatre costs. You can see the Australian bit coming out here, cost buckets. And then you're going to sort of trace the costs that have been accumulated in that cost bucket to your patients, to your treatments on maybe theatre minutes. Well, it's a certainly a better approch than reference costing. I'd be the first to accept that. 
But you know, the fact of the matter is that a lot of people you know, still don't understand what it really means. And it doesn't tell you, you know, why something costs what it is, it's just what. And you know, clinicians really struggle with it. And frankly, if clinicians aren't actually sort of, uh, sort of buying into this, then you've got a real problem all by itself. So we think that there has to be a better way. And there's a guy called Robert Harris, who for quite a few years was the director of policy at Monitor. And he made this observation. It happened to be one that we happened to share. But also, importantly, it was the regulator's you know, preferred approach. And it looks like this. Okay? Well, hang on, before I go into the detail of it. What it needs to be able to do is deliver on these things. First of all, show profitability on a multi-dimensional basis by service line, by patient, so you can see the outliers and get away from the averages, so you can see the high-cost uh, 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 treatments, the high-cost clinicians, surgeons, and so on. It needs to be able to show you the care pathways, business processes, what they look like, what the scope for improvement is. It also needs to be able to tell you what happens if the shape of demand on the trust were to change. And there are three broad reasons why that might happen. One, sheer demographics. Those will be quite slow-moving. Second one, because the trust itself makes a major decision to do something differently, to become a specialist in oncology or whatever, and try and attract more business, more patients. But the third reason why demand might change is because a competing trust, particularly in urban areas, might choose to start competing head-to-head -head with what you're doing in your trust. Being able to understand the implications of those changes today is hugely important. It's also, though, about understanding the cost base of the trusts to the point where you really understand what drives the need for that cost. So you can challenge and question in a much more objective way than may be possible in the past. It's also about being able to analyse your, your information by where the patients are coming from, from which GP surgeries, from which commissioners. Because if a local GP is sending his patients to another trust, you need to know about it. So you can do some marketing. Now, that's a new word in the NHS, but it's getting a lot of currency at the moment. But it's also about measurement and management of quality alongside the cost information. At the end of the day, if this information is not credible, if it doesn't explain what is really driving costs, really driving profitability, then it's a waste of time. So that really is the litmus test. Okay. So a better methodology for looking at this must have a proper logic flow, to be honest. It can't be apportionment. Patients come to a trust because they'd like to get better. Statement of the obvious. The number and mix of patients that you have, the range of treatments you provide, right? Sorry. To help them get better, you spend a lot of money, by the way, as captured in the general ledger by cost centre. That number and mix of patients, the range of treatments you provide, both of them drive demand on the trust. Now, that demand is only satisfied by people doing work. PAs are called pro are just simply program activities. It's how you define what a consultant does. It's how they get paid. Okay? Uh, so this could be sort of changing bed linen, feeding a patient, administering an anaesthetic, and so on. And that work only gets done because you've got the resources in place to do it. The people, the space, the equipment, the consumables, that happens to cost money. That's a logic flow. We, th we talk in terms about cause and effect. We spend all this money to buy all these resources because we want this work done to respond to the demand that's being placed on this trust to do with treatments, to do with patients, and so on. And of course, it's at that stage that the income comes in. So if you understand your profitability right, in this way, and somebody says, well, this particular specialty over here, why is it losing so much money? 
Well, because you know, that's the number of patients that came to us for that kind of treatment that drove that amount of demand, that caused this amount of work to be done, undertaken by these resources, that cost this amount of money compared to the income that was generated. Now, if you've done that, you can work the whole thing backwards, and what, it becomes a foundation for what some people call service line planning. But what we're finding is that clinicians understand it. They are the litmus test. It's not whether I understand it or you understand it. It's about whether people who are actually in the thick of it, in the medical profession, in a hospital, does it sort of, yeah, make sense to them. And what we're finding is it's a speaking a language that they much more readily understand, the language of work, the language of resources. Because you can go and talk to a resource. The people there, what names, you know, what salary bands they're on and so on. The cost is a secondary issue. It's a common denominator. It also gives the ability to look at the profitability of an NHS trust from the highest level, trust-wide, down to the individual patient level in about five clicks. If there's time, we'll see how we're doing. We might show you an example of that. So this notion of cause and effect, I don't care if you call it ABC or anything else. I really don't care. But the essence of the cause and effect bit is important. To us, it's absolutely the heart of joined-up thinking because it explains a bunch of things. Not just what something costs, but why. And the why makes the information actionable. Tells you what you can begin to do about it. It also begins to explain the cost dynamics of the organisation of the trust and its service lines. And therefore, a really firm foundation for not just one or the other, but both service line reporting and patient level costing, because service line reporting is simply the aggregation of the patient level information up to the service line level. So you can begin to analyse your profit on a multi dimensional basis in the way that we spoke before. You can begin to look at that in terms of care pathways and not just the obvious ones. You can begin to think about it in terms of demand management, in terms of capacity management, in terms of resource management, and also, of course, cost management. So at the end of the day, what we're seeing is that this kind of thinking, this kind of methodology is becoming a very firm foundation for what people refer to as service line management. Okay. Now, what I want to do next is show you the results. This is the first cut results from a large NHS trust. I'm not going to tell you which one, but they're a little bit shocking, but I will qualify them. First of all, I'm going to look at the cumulative profitability by treatment. Now, this trust provides annually something like 20,000 20, different types of treatment to around about, for the sake of argument, 700,000 patients in a year. So we've plotted the most profitable treatment first, then the next, then the next, then the next. It'll rise up and it will come down. Now, bear in mind, these trusts are being required to save 5% of their costs in real terms per annum. Just look at the scale on the left-hand side. Essentially what this is saying is this trust is making a profit of some £30 million. It could have been making a profit up there of £100 million. On the face of it, superficially, it's saying there's massive cross-subsidisation between these treatments over here and these treatments over here. Now my qualification of these numbers is that what you're seeing in part here is the effect of the inaccuracy that's come with the tariffs. I think there's a lot of those, but those are now becoming apparent. But even if you straighten out the tariffs right, and make them sort of more reflective of the actual work that goes into the treatments provided, you'll still find a profile of that kind. And of course, the challenge is not to get rid of those treatments. Or is it? You see, if you're an NHS trust in a rural area in the middle of nowhere, in sort of Cornwall or Devon, you haven't got a competitor within easy reach. But if you're in London, just look at how many NHS trust hospitals there are in central London and the immediate surrounding area. Likewise, Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds. You know? Do they all have to be providing the same services? 
Well, that's a question that's going to be raised more and more over the next two or three years. We may not like it. They won't like it. What I, if I was a betting man, I was to predict, you're going to find some rationalisation of service delivery over the next five years as part of how they achieve that £20 billion saving. Now, I'm not passing a value judgment on that. I'm just saying I believe that will happen. And this kind of information will begin to inform that kind of decision-making. That's the same profile now looking at it from the patient perspective. You have 700,000 patients on that horizontal axis. Okay. And there, there's the 30 million uh, sort of, uh, total of profitability there. And that maxes out at 130. Again, it shows you the cross-subsidization that's going on between different patients. It's huge. An example from another trust. You'll have noticed from the earlier sort of, uh, screenshot from the Monitor Service Line Reporting Toolkit, they talk about variability. Well, this is just some analysis from one particular trust that we've been working with. It happens to be a, sort of a, a, sort of a house and chest specialist unit. And what they've done here is they've taken a particular HRG, and HRG is simply a small group of treatments, so like hip replacements or knees or whatever. But you know, it, it has a tariff. And what they've done here in this particular trust, they say, okay, how much does it cost for every patient for, the, for their pathology test when they come in for that kind of treatment? And what they found shocked them rigid because it said, well, the average cost of pathology test is about £97. But the least expensive is only £3. The most expensive was almost 1000 And it begs the question, why do we have so much variability? Now, near the finance people said, got no idea. I mean, how would they know? Of course they wouldn't know. So what they did, I thought, was really quite clever. They began to apply, apply peer group pressure. Essentially, what they did was they got the clinicians together from that area, said, fellas, this is the information. First of all, validate it, make sure you're comfortable that it's correct. Then you tell us why we have this variability, and you tell us what best practice looks like that will help us to reduce that variability. And that's exactly what they did. And that reduced the average cost of pathology test in that HRG by around about a third or just over. And it'll probably go down by even more in due course because clinicians started to share best practice amongst themselves on the same site. So it can drive behaviour. But the point is, we're talking about huge volumes of data here. Think about it, 700,000 detailed P&L accounts for individual hospital trusts. It's just massive. How do you deal with that? How do you get that information to a clinician? Well, you need to find a way of doing it. So this is not, you know, this is about, not about costing methodology. This is about how you actually sort of disseminate and share information. Now, the good news is, there's been a fundamental change in technology around business information, so, uh, business intelligence recently. And I'm not going to bore you with the detail, but it's about the fact that you, you can run things in RAM and it's much more associative. It means you don't have to develop data cubes anymore. I won't bore you with that. What it means though is things are much, much faster and they're much more easily accessible. And basically what I want to do very, very briefly is just show you what a clinician might look, might see. This is where I take my life in my hands. Essentially, this is just a demonstration model, and it's showing you uh, a, a hospital trust. We've taken a slice of data from it, and essentially, just point and click, and you start seeing results. So, for example, you have a series of views of results over here about income, about costs, about profitability, about margins, some analysis by specialty, by how that's delivered, and so on. And you have a bunch of filters on the left-hand side, so you can choose which of these you want to have a look at. So you go and look at sort of, uh, analysis by point of delivery. So what's the inpatient work? Well, click on that. It shows you. Double-click, come back out again, and go and click again and look at the outpatients. Well, outpatients, 
Interestingly enough, they deliver a margin of 36% compared to inpatients of only 4%. If you ever wonder why it is that they now want to treat you on an outpatient basis, that's it. Okay? And let's just sort of look at it how a survey clinician might see it. If we go and look at the monitor views, remember these are the ones prescribed by monitor. So the bubble chart, profitability. Essentially what we're looking at there is a view of profitability. Horizontal axis is profitability. So to the right of that vertical line is positive, to the left it's negative. Number of active patients in each of these specialties is on the vertical axis. Each bubble is a different specialty and the key on the right hand side. Let me just pick one out, neurosurgery. I click on that and I zoom in, right? And the neat thing is that anybody can do this, even a clinician with five minutes training, right? And they can't break it, that's the good news. That's really quite liberating. And imagine for a second that I'm the head of this specialty. I'm in clover, because I'm making shed loads of money, got loads of patients, and life's good, you know? So I want to look at the corresponding, what they would call an INE segment. We call it a PL account. It's the same thing. So this is the INE statement for neurosurgery. So again, this is the PL account as defined by the regulator monitor. So income, direct costs, split by pay, non pay, drugs, etc. Indirect costs, all the clinical support areas here. Contribution overheads, earnings, and so on. Now the first column is the total for the trust in that period, so it's static. The second column will reflect whatever you've chosen and is shown in the bottom left-hand corner down there. The third column is one as a percentage of the other. So this is saying that neurosurgery is 12% of our income, but it's also saying it's 116% of our overall profitability, so massively important to us. Now because it's my area, I want to go into a little bit more detail. So I'm going to look at that in this way. So I'm going to look at specialty. So there's neurosurgery, income and profit. And I want to drill down behind that. So I want to analyse that by HIV or the different types of treatments that are within that area. Now forget all the small numbers on the right hand side because we've taken a slice of data and that's you know, distorting. If that was real data set I'd be absolutely worried. I'd like to focus though on the left hand side intracranial procedures, brain surgery to you and me. That says we're doing a lot of get a lot of income, make not much money. So, what's happening there? So, click on it, go and have a look. Let's analyse that by what they would call point of delivery. So, that is simply how the treatment is provided. So, is it inpatient? Is it outpatient? Is it elective? Is it not? And you know, immediately tell us, this tells us something very worrying: that somebody somewhere is doing brain surgery on a day case basis. So, I'm not volunteering for that one. If anybody likes to volunteer, you're more than welcome. It could be it's a coding error. But there's something rather sort of counterintuitive going on here. In the normal course of events, I'd expect something done on a planned basis to be more profitable than something done on an unplanned basis. Yeah? Well, it's just the opposite up there. So what's going on here? So I'm pleased that we're making a profit on the non-elective stuff, where somebody's had an accident and literally there's been wheeled and we have to work on them straight away. But the planned stuff, well, let's go and have a look at that. Let's analyse that by the individual consultants. So, right, this is where it gets interesting. Every consultant has their own number, right? And you can see here that every one of them made a surplus with two exceptions. One of them really quite notable. That one there, consultant 229. Now what's interesting is Adam Brooks, where they're doing exactly this, they started off with numbers for their consultants and now they insist on having names. The peer group pressure there is great. They can compete so much. But I do want to know about consultant 229 because it doesn't mean to say they're doing a bad job. They may be doing a fantastic job on the most difficult cases. But it's just saying the income isn't covering the cost. So why is, what's going on there? So let's go and dive in and have a look. Click on it. Let's analyse that by, I don't know, by patient episode, by individual patient. 
And this is saying that in that period, this surgeon worked on those three patients. One just about broke even, just about broke even. one made a modest surplus. The uh, last one, a thumping deficit. What on earth is happening there? Got no idea yet. Haven't got the answer. Let's click on it. So let's go and look at the patient bill, like a hotel bill. So it now tells us the detail that sits behind that from a cost perspective. It's all been traced through on the basis that we spoke of just a few minutes ago. So immediately you can see there's a lot of money going, going on home care drugs, on the in, uh, inpatient drugs, time in theatre and so on. It's beginning to explain that cost of 50-odd thousand pounds. So you can imagine sitting down now with the surgeon concerned saying, does this information look right? And then saying, yeah, that looks right because of X, Y, Z. Well, they might be saying, no, there's an error there, so you go and correct it. Fine. But if it is correct, you might have the basis for going back to the primary care trust, the commission, and say, we need a top-up for this because the tariff setting doesn't cover it. And if you hold all those selections which are built up down there and going back and look at the monitor views at profitability, now the selection reflects that individual patient episode. It's showing we only had income of less than £6,000 for that patient, but the total cost was some 51000 That's why we lost so much money. And somebody might be looking at that and saying, hang on a minute, let's just go and check the coding on that. In fact, the coding may have been wrong. And if we'd coded correctly, the correct coding may have been £60,000, in which case we would have made a profit. So let's now go back to the PCT, the commissioners, and actually claim the correct amount. So it can have a direct impact on the financial performance of the organisation. Trafford Hospital was where the NHS started in 1948. A year and a half ago, they were in deep trouble in the public mind because they were making massive losses. They discovered, after the events, because their coding was so bad, they actually hadn't claimed for a lot of the income they should have done. So getting coding wrong and not knowing about it can be very, very expensive. Okay, that just, was just to give you a, sort of a, a flavour of what an NHS trust clinician or manager might be able to see. And... I just want to tell you a short anecdote now. Um, we were invited to go up to the Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital uh, in the autumn of 2007 and we had to do a presentation to their management team and I was told, I was asked for, for clinicians to be there and I was told just before we started that none were available, they were all busy doing other stuff. I presumed it wasn't golf, but you know, we can't be sure. But at the very last minute, I was just, we just started, a lady walked in dressed in blue scrubs, quite a, tall, quite a commanding bearing, and she sat at the head of the table and she glared at me for the whole session. It's very unnerving, I have to tell you. And at the end she asked some really good questions. Really. And I thought, well, that must have been the director of nursing, because I'm told there are no clinicians here. At the end of it, she walked over to the chap who'd organised the meeting, had a quiet word with him, looked up, gave me a great big grin and walked out. And I said, well, who's that? And that was Elaine. Now, Elaine's important because she's one of only two female consultant cardiothoracic surgeons in the whole country. So a lady has really made her mark in a very male-dominated part of the medical profession. And that's what she said. So the, for me, the ultimate limits test. Even more so because that was three years, well, autumn 2007. They've now done this. This is now part of the fabric about the, how they run that trust. And I'll come back to them in just a few minutes. But before I do that, I'd like to allude to something else. Last year, uh, Imperial College uh, Business School uh, did a study partially funded by SEMA on costing in the NHS. And they produced this report around about so June, July time. It was undertaken by Professor Chris Chapman and Dr. Anja Kern. And I, have, I do commend that you read it. It is a really well-written document. Now, it's, it's written less for the academic community, more for sort of the practitioner community. Um, and I'm sure there's another more academic version of it kicking around somewhere. Um, I'm certain there is. 
But do read it, because it is full of insight. Now, I, I could spend a whole hour easily talking about that, but I'm not going to. But the key findings very simply are this, that the Department of Health needs to be a lot clearer about what it means by what it wants from its costing, because they have completely misunderstood the meaning of the word activity. They've confused clinical activity, like outcomes, hip replacement, with activity as in the word activity-based costing. And it's causing all sorts of mayhem out there in the marketplace. There needs to be a lot better training yeah, for uh, people in the finance area and for the clinicians because when people engage with this, first of all, they'll get some preliminary results, but they need to evolve, become more sophisticated over time. And you'll find in sort of the report um, uh, that uh, Chapman and Kern produced that they talk about theatre costing. They've come across some very simplistic approaches to it and ones that are a lot more sophisticated. And I suspect in demand, in response to internal demand in, in, within trusts, there'll be a need to move to become more sophisticated over time. The third thing they refer to is the need to be able to share good practice and you know, where it's actually showing real effect, saving real money. Now, we contributed to that research uh, along with many, many other people. I'm very pleased to have done that and delighted to see the results. But they came back to us after the event and said, Robin, we want to take our research further. We'd like to go and talk to some individual trusts um, to see you know, what they've done, you know, and sitting on management meetings and all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, I'm not sure which one to send you to, but try this one. And we sent them up to Liverpool Heart and Chest. Now, Liverpool Heart and Chest is a turnover of, what, 70, 80 million pounds a year. It's what is called a tertiary trust. They specialize literally in heart, chest, all thoracic stuff, and so on. They do a great job, have a fantastic reputation. But they were happy to, so they felt they'd matured enough uh, in terms of not just developing you know, the numbers for service line reporting and patient level costing, they'd actually developed a complete performance management suite, right? So they'd gone well beyond sort of, uh, where they first started. And this is how they form management decision making throughout the trust, from the highest level down to the lowest. We said to you know, uh, Chris Chapman and Andrew Cullen, well, go and talk to them. And so they did. And, uh, oh, sorry, the other point that was made by uh, Chapman and Kern was that, which I just wanted to draw to your attention. Given that the NHS must make major cost savings in coming years, this report argues that ABC analysis of cost behaviour is a tool that offers many attractions, outweighing the cost of undertaking it. Okay. Um, right, the research. Right, let's just come back to that. That research has not been published yet. I'm told it's going to be published, I believe, around about June, July time-ish. I'm quite looking forward to it. But when they finished their field work, that consisted of actually interviewing members of the senior management team, sitting in on management meetings, watching how the information is being used live. They don't use paper reports anymore, it's all on screen, okay? Or we can get at it over the web. They wrote a letter to the hospital, basically saying thank you very much, and these are our overall findings. And I just want to sort of share this with you. And I've you know, checked and the hospital themselves are happy that it be shared. Undertaking a study on costing in the NHS, we have carried out in, an in-depth studies in four selected NHS trusts and have collected cost, data on costing systems across more than 30 different trusts. In addition, we have collected data on hospital costing systems in other EU countries. I know there are quite a few as well. I can confirm... Yeah, no problem. I can confirm that the design and use of costing systems at Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital is exemplary for best practice of providing accurate and relevant cost costing data at the patient level, providing reports that are useful to, in managing service lines, and I think critically important from our perspective, engaging cl uh, clinicians in the use of such data. This trust gets it. 
They get management accounting. They're using it live today. And I would argue that they are further advanced than many organisations in the private sector. And uh, all credit to them. Uh, and they finish off by saying it's the most advanced trusts, most advanced amongst trusts in the UK that have been, it's been their study so far. We know there are other trusts out there that are doing some brilliant work as well. They just haven't got around to seeing them as yet. Um, so, what does this mean for research? Well, I think that if you look at service line reporting and patient level costing, we'll see more adoption, greater diffusion across the NHS over the coming two or three years in particular, greater focus on improving data accuracy. That's already happening in many, many trusts. Greater refinement in a number of different ways. It'll extend, it will mature. It'll become part of the fabric of how people do business, how they make decisions in trusts. It'll go into new areas like capacity management, internal trading that he touched on earlier on. It also allows people to bring this financial information together with other things. So, for example, how these different elements interact, clinical outcomes, effectiveness, and financial performance. You saw that chart earlier on. If you depress the length of stay, length of stay is a big driver of cost in the NHS. And therefore, people want to drive that down. If you drive that down artificially by checking people out prematurely, your readmission rates will go up. If your readmission rates go up, your patients will be less happy because they don't want to come back in again. And your profitability will go down, I promise you that. The work will go up, the amount of resources you have to employ will go up, and also you know, it will have a knock-on effect in terms of uh, how the patients perceive things. There are lots of different competing levers. If we do more of this, what's the effect going to be? The NHS wants to begin to model that kind of information. They're going to be quite sophisticated. Um, the last development which I think is coming is all about embedding, all about engagement, which they've done to probably the most advanced stage possible to date at Liverpool Heart and Chest. In terms of research, we were delighted to see a call for research proposals just recently. And these are the four. Uh, this is like... Uh, what are the characteristics and determinants of successful costing improvement programs in the NHS? Hot topic. How can financial management of service delivery be improved through service line management? Um, what is the capacity and capability of NHS organisations for effective financial management? And finally, how can costing and accounting frameworks and budgetary arrangements be used to improve for financial management? Now, that was a call for research recently published by the NHS National Institute for Health Research. It closed on the 17th. I'm told it's one of the most heavily subscribed uh, calls for research for a very long time. Um, and so, you know, we see a lot more coming back to places like this in the next two or three years. And just to finish off, I just want to finish off on a, sort of a, a closing thought, if I may. Um, and it's this. Now, I came across this chart, this diagram, on the wall of a client just recently senior dinosaur, talk to more junior dinosaurs, and you might even recognise some of your colleagues here. Uh, and essentially, the words that go with this are these. The picture's pre-bleak, gentlemen, the world's climate are changing, the mammals are taking over, and we all have a brain about the size of a walnut. Well, we have a slight advantage, we have a slightly larger brain, but the real message from this uh, cartoon is simply this. In their time, the dinosaurs weren't able to adapt fast enough to the things that were affecting them, so they became extinct. And that's true for all of us. It's about our ability to respond. And what we're seeing now is the NHS, a very large, long-established organisation, being asked to change at speed right, by the government, where not even all of the players are actually on board. Is this exciting? I think it is. Is it scary? Yes, it is. Is it fascinating? Absolutely it is. But I think it's absolutely an area of management accounting is here to stay. 
is going to have a really important role to play, not just for a few more years, but for a long time to come. And I think absolutely it warrants a lot more research now, because I think it's just a really exciting place to be. So I'm looking forward to our colleagues here in the academic community putting some more effort into this in the NHS, but I think it's going to be very, very rewarding. So no pressure, guys. Good luck. Thank you very much. I worked on the basis if I taught long enough, they couldn't ask any questions. Thank you very much, uh, Robin. That was a fascinating insight into something which is so complex and huge, you begin to wonder how you could ever begin to ask about it. We're going to have a, a general panel session next, with, including Robin and other speakers. So if you've got questions that are kind of about across issues, perhaps you'd like to keep them for the panel session. And we can just take a couple now for any particular points on Robin's uh, presentation and the health service issues. Yes. Please say who you are. Hi, I'm Happy Raman from Shell, so an equally complex organization um, <laughs> right, um, across borders and with cultures. But the tool in itself is very impressive. Could you talk about the journey and how you got to that level of simplicity um, and clarity? Because the engagement, data quality, all those, oh, this is too hard, it's not, it's not applicable here. How did you surmount all of that? I think that one of the biggest things that made a, a huge we talked to the NHS here 10 years ago and they just weren't interested at all because there was no imperative for change. The imperative came from two quarters, the Department of Health, payment by results, and Monitor saying, you've got to do this. So they had no choice. Um, and yeah, that makes a huge difference. Now, you then find that you have the early adopters who say, we want to be you know, in the rat race early, we want to be sort of setting the pattern here setting the pace, and some very good trusts have actually sort of, in a sense, volunteered and said, we're going to do this, because they actually do believe it anyway. They, very often there are people from industry who have actually gone into the NHS who, who get it, they understand this is valuable, good management accounting information, and can be applied and is relevant in that sector. Um, there's going to be some who never get it, and they'll probably get taken over in due course. Um, so now I, I, that's my short answer to your question, I'm afraid, and it's, I could give you another hour on it, I'm afraid. It is, has been absolutely a privilege and absolutely fascinating to be a, a party to it, but also uh, an observer of it as well. Okay. Gentlemen, there we go. Just behind the pillar. Uh, uh, David, yours, Henny uh, Business School. Um, on one of your um, slides from Monitor, it talks about EBITDA, which is something we all know about, but not necessarily in the this particular sector. Does that mean I can undertake valuations of this sector, first of all? And the second question, can you explain um, the axis on your graph about making 30, mi 30 million versus 100 million profit? Yes, if, if, right, let's take the first one. I'm not sure about the answer to that question because I'm not a specialist in EBITDA, I have no desire to be. Uh, but that's the yeah, monitor's view of the world. They were advised by McKinsey, by the way, which is probably where it came from. Um, they spent shed loads with McKinsey, but they, I think they probably did a reasonable job. Um, it is what it is, and you know, we could argue it one way or another. I think it's quite interesting. What they're trying to do is make the NHS think in more commercial terms, but without losing the focus on quality. So the, the mid-staff crisis, I think, was an absolute shock to monitor, because they felt so embarrassed. They'd just given this trust approval to be for foundation trust status, and then discovered 500 people had died when they shouldn't have done. I mean, 
how do you live with that? Well, that caused all sorts of uh, problems between them and the Care Quality Commission and so on. And you know, Monitor's role is now going to change. They're going to be purely an economic regulator, so there's more specialization and so on. Um, your second point, the, the cumulative uh, contribution curve, you take the largest individual contributor first, this is treatment or patient, then on the next, then the next, then the next, then the next. And as, as long as they're all positive, it'll keep on going up, but at a decreasing rate. And eventually, you'll start getting into the ones that are making you worse off, then start dipping down again, and that's all it is. It's just a visual way of representing a vast volume of data. One more, and then we will have the open session. Behind the pillar of, uh, I got, sorry, two. Two more, okay. One is your quick, quick question, not an essay. Hello, I'm Jeremy Dent from London Business School. And I just, I've got one observation on this cumulative profitability sure. graph, and then a, a, a second observation, which is actually a direct question to you. On the cumulative profitability chart, which we're all very familiar with from every single ABC study that's ever been done, yeah. it does strike me that in this, in this instance, because we haven't got a market price, but rather a price that is mandated by some sort of central authority, <laughs> that actually it's rather spurious, because whether a, a procedure is profitable or not is not so much a reflection of the cost as the deemed price. I'd agree. I'd agree. Yep. Uh, so in some senses, it seems to me to lose some of its power. But it the does. question I wanted to put to you um, is that, uh, in my experience, implementing ABC-type uh, studies or implementing ABC systems in organizations like hospitals or, in, in my case, I try to do it in the Ministry of Defense, is that these people aren't paid to keep a record of their time. And the real Achilles heel is getting the base data, getting the data input. That isn't right. Nothing else is going to be. How do you overcome that problem? Okay. First of all, there are degrees of rightness, and you don't want to go into masses of detail. That's the first and most important bit. But what we've found is if you keep things at a high level for initially, we, we, we generally do a time box approach, which means you don't sort of work until the data quality is of a certain level. You say, right, we'll make the best of whatever's available in a given period, usually about sort of three or four months. Okay? And if the data's not available, we'll say so. We'll make the best assumptions we can in the face of that absence of quality data and we'll color code it so you can see, make transparent areas of poor data quality. So you can see the implications. That's actually been quite an important spin-off, not the reason why people do it. But that gives you some first results, which are their numbers, which they can start discussing amongst themselves. That then creates a sort of almost like a feedback loop. And what you very often find is that poor data quality arises, and you find a clinician saying, that's a load of rubbish. When you look at where that data has come from, it's very often come from their area. And their co the coding by their colleagues has been poor. Their data capture has been poor. So if they want to do it right, it's in their hands. And what we've seen is actually quite a dramatic improvement in a number of trusts in data quality for just that reason. So we generally argue keep it high level, chunky to start off with, and then refine it in response to internal demand as you go along. That's what's happened at Liverpool Heart and Chest and virtually all of the other trusts. We're working with around about 30 trusts now on this kind of thing. So it becomes demand-led internally. So if they want more detail, they can have it. But don't give them detail they choke on on day one, because, Frank, they won't thank you. Yeah? There was one last quick question at the back, and then we'll move on. Can you hear me? Yes. I'm Cathy Knowles from Oxford Brookes University, but ex-financial controller of Heinz, where we implemented ABC, ran it for two years, and dropped it, along with most manufacturing, certainly manufacturing operations. Yeah. What makes you think that the NHS will have more success with ABC than a host of manufacturing companies? 
Okay. First of all, I don't know the specific circumstances of Heinz. I know that you ran it in manufacturing at certain sites. Was it across the whole business of Heinz business or just in manufacturing? Manufacturing. So really, you're literally only looking at part of your total cost base, not the total end-to-end -end profitability, which is what they're looking at here. I think the, the reason why this, I think, will have legs is that you know, it is not just being driven by the regulator, it's being driven by the economic climate. They're going to have to make better informed decisions about, so are they going to specialise in this area or that, grow this area, withdraw from another? These are very real decisions. They know they have to be well informed. Or so, uh, rephrase that. The majority of trusts know they have to be better informed. And if they don't, they're going to get taken over, get wiped out. Essentially, if a trust hasn't qualified for foundation trust status by, I think it's 2013, then there's every possibility that they will be taken over by another trust that is a foundation trust. So if you're one of those trusts and you haven't got it yet, boy, do you want it. It's a real motivator. And if this is what you have to do to get it, you're going to do it. And the regulator is very tough on any trust that actually hasn't done this. You just won't get foundation trust status. So they're saying, you've got to do it. And that's the regulator. And that hasn't wavered with the change of administration from Labour to Tory. So we think it's going to be here for, I think, a long time to come, whether they like it or not. Interesting. Well, I think we should thank Robin very much. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yet. No, no. Now on the panel, it's Michael Bromwich will now take command. Um, I have a problem with this in the sense that most of the panel can't be seen. I'm not quite sure what we do about that. Yeah, even so. There's this thing's in the way. So, so probably we'll stand up or something. I can see them. Yeah, but they can't see you. They see you. I've already said that I don't really understand the title of this uh, conference. I've explained what I think the title might be about. And I've asked the panel to come prepared to say a few words on the title and what it means. So that should be quite interesting. See how different perceptions work. Um, I'm not going to say very much um, other than I might as well do a bit of publicity for Alan, my book, called Management Accounting, Retrospect and Prospect. And part of that, we did this. And this roughly says, these are the fundamental old-fashioned, if you like, or well-known uh, bits of management accounting. And the real thing about most of them is, they started rather a long while ago, and they're still with us. There are people who, for example, think budgetary control should disappear. Well, it's still with us. And um, so in some sense, there's sort of five uh, foundations for management accounting as we know it. 
So what have we done since then? Now this should be fun because I'm very bad at this. Alright, what have we done since then? We brought along a number of nice things, new things. Okay, um, starting at the top, value-added management. Um, and what you find if you, these are impressions by the way, I'm not saying this is based on a vast amount of data and so on, uh, these are impressions. But what you find is that until recently at least, almost all financial reports sort of said we maximise shareholder value. I suspect now stakeholders have appeared a bit more, but you know. Um, but when you actually go down, further down and say, well how many firms uh, use EVA to reward their managers? It becomes much, much smaller. I was very interested in this morning because in some sense what our Chinese uh, friends were saying was that they do use residual income as some sort of bonus base, which if, if it works properly will be something in advance of what, what most people do um, in the UK and the US. Uh, Re-engineering the finance department, well why not? If they're going to be miserable to everybody else, why don't we make them miserable? That's been very, I think it's reasonable to say, very high. Balanced scorecard, again, everybody has a balanced scorecard. If you drill down, you wonder exactly what they are. You know, it can be a dashboard at one end and what the chairman wants to do at the other. You know, um, and, but that, that is one of the um, successes. Uh, I'm a bit worried about this second last one. Activity-based costing, I've got down as 20%. And, you know, you can do more on the basis of the evidence. You can say, well, it's 30% or 25% or whatever. For big, these are all big firms, obviously. Um, and uh, so these are, the, if you like, the new five areas. One area I haven't added is performance measurement, other than EVA. And the reason I haven't added that is because although there's a vast literature on performance measurement, it is not clear to me how far that has impinged on the uh, organisations. It may well be, it's, you know, the moment somebody thinks of a new performance measurement theory, it immediately gets into practice. But I don't know that, and the empirical evidence doesn't tell me. So there's a bit of a gap there. But they're the sort of things that, that's really what we're equipping the management accounting with. You can say, well, strategic management accounting should be there as well. But, you know, they're the major cause. And the question really, I guess, is, have they failed us? Have they failed us? And are they the basis for moving into a future which is very different. Let me explain just two seconds about that. One, in what sense can the future be different? Well, one of the things that's clearly very different is the idea that um, the old-fashioned way of, make, of making decisions has disappeared and will disappear more. Basically, the old-fashioned thing was what you did at the, before you started an activity, you made a decision, you tried to work out whether it had a present value or not. If it had a positive present value, you then did it, and so on. More and more, that's not easy. 
more and more what's happening is you do some activities and you learn things and you change decisions and that's different that's one example um, another example uh, these are just a couple of examples of things that are different to what they were one of the major difficulties in accounting or management accounting was to sort of allocate costs to various products in some way or other that's also changing if you go to the electronic world um, what, do you, what do you get there? well what you get is an electronic world where the customer uses the web or whatever without any cost and somebody entirely different pays the cost so the days when we could compare the cost, revenue from the customer with the cost the cost to have that customer are disappearing. The one I like best is the, um, li the, the um, what's happened to university libraries. What happens to university libraries is now that a publisher will sell you a bundle of publications which you then put onto, the way, onto your uh, system electronically. Now the publisher sets the price for that, the total bundle, you pay a, a price for the total bundle. Now the really interesting thing is, whereas you can probably work out the cost per journal quite nicely and easily, how do you work out the revenue? Because basically, as a lump sum revenue for the 200 journals, how do you sort of allocate the revenue to each of the journals? I have a feeling that the way it's done is as you would expect, good old-fashioned rubbishy allocation. Obviously one of the obvious ways of doing it is we give more revenue to the journals which have more hits, the journals which are more used, which is, you know, really saying, Robin, please come and do something, but not necessarily on the cost side, but on the revenue side. That are the sort of things I, I think are some, every, some illustrations of what I think may be changing. Um, now, if I may, what I've asked each of our panellists to do is to talk for uh, no more than five minutes. No more than five minutes. Um, there has been a slight change in the panel in that I'm afraid that Professor Gosch um, has been taken ill and... Um, we wish him well. He was here this morning. Um, and I've asked Peter Simons to come and take his place. I'm sure Peter's got a highly complicated title at SEMA, um, but what he is is a specialist in knowing where management accounting is going or not. So if I may, I will ask the panel to come and talk. Uh, I haven't got any particular orders. Shall we just go round? Yeah, right, off you come. Thank you. Now, if I seem ignorant and ill-prepared, there are two good reasons for that. Uh, Robin um, ended talking about um, adaptability. And um, like him, I don't actually do literature. But um, something I read in the Harvard Business Review about a year ago was that um, the companies that are going to do best coming out of the recession are those which can balance 
improving the competitive position while cutting costs. Because most of us, when it comes to cost management, the focus on, is on cutting, cutting costs, and the most discretionary costs and easiest to cut are those which have long-term benefit, like sending people on training programs or investing in new systems or whatever. So I'm going to take the title, literally, Shifting Through the Gears. And I think the first gear is where management accountants, that is, accountants of business, um, even if they're ICAW qualified, where they start out is they start out saying no. That's what cost management is about. It's about saying no. The budget is this, and that's all you can do. Um, last year, we were doing a little bit of work with the public sector, and the Department of Innovation and Skills faced a problem where they knew their costs would have to be cut. The budget would be cut. And we were talking to people in the insolvency service who should know about problems of business, but their big problem was they actually make revenue. They charge for their services. But their costs are funded by the Department of Innovation and Skills, and the revenue goes to the Treasury. So they could cut the costs, but they wouldn't generate any revenue. So that wouldn't make a lot of sense. So a, a focus on costs alone is not a joined-up approach. It's not very sensible. It has to be considered alongside value. Um, they're talking to the public sector about the salami slice approach to cost-cutting. That's where you cut costs across the board. Well, referring to that Harvard Business Review article, that's not going to be the solution. We've got to be able to invest at the same time. So let's shift up a gear. And second gear, because that's sorry, the title of the thing is shifting to the gears and cost-cutting, or cost management. The second gear is what's happened in the finance function. They've tried to re-engineer the finance function in most businesses. You've looked at um, uh, standardizing systems, working towards automation, working towards silent running, getting cost out. We've looked at business process improvement, the application of lean, where we're getting rid of um, any, anything that doesn't generate value, we get rid of. We have Six Sigma, where we generate errors, which result in reworking. And we've got Kaizen, continuous process improvement, and the whole business engaged in process improvement. And finally, we've got shared service centers, where we've got economies of scale, specialism, expertise. Those principles make sense. Now, this is still focusing on cost. The third gear is where we start to provide cost leadership. It's the third gear is the one in which you accelerate. And I gather um, Professor Ghosh is American, so this wouldn't have suited him. He'd never said this because they have automatic cars. But in third gear, <laughs> you accelerate. And that's where the finance function applies the cost leadership principles, the cost reduction principles it has learned in the finance function across the business. And you'll see um, people using the term business partner. And actually, all they're interested in doing is reducing the costs in the business. And what they're trying to do is not just cut the budget, but to cut the budget more intelligently and run the business more efficiently. So a lot of cost management is about improving efficiency. Fourth gear is where Robin Bellis-Jones comes in with the analytical approach. This is where we've got activity-based costing, benchmarking, and we've, we've got a more, as I say, intelligent approach to cost management. We're looking to um, provide insight to understand the drivers of cost and provide transparency through intelligence systems so that people are in control of costs and can start to reduce costs themselves. The fifth gear, though, is um, I'm going to try and paraphrase something that Professor Zhang from Beijing said earlier. He said, cost management is most effective when it is aligned with fundamental changes in how the business is run. And that's so sensible, because there you're back to, it's about how does the business run, how does it generate value. That's where you start to look at remuneration policies, and it's, and it's where you take that long-term view, where you kind of say, ah, budget is tight. 
but we will still consider a business case for investing in something which will improve efficiency or develop a competitive position. That's all I've got to say. Okay, thank, thanks, Pete, for that. He, he pinched one of my thoughts, because when he was going through the gears, I was thinking, I'll have to say something about an automatic, because I hadn't, I hadn't thought through that process at all. But uh, you pinched that one, didn't you? That's right. Yeah. Okay, uh, in terms of my particular comments, as, as mentioned earlier this morning, I'm particularly interested in kind of supply chains and inter-organisational relationships. So, from my perspective, I think one of the key drivers for the, for the future needs to be to recognise that organisations don't actually operate in isolation, that organisations actually operate with each other. And that in many ways, if we pick up on your point about competitive advantage, that in, in reality that competitive advantage comes from working with others and working across organisational boundaries. So I feel that the way that we need to progress is actually to, to get a much better understanding of the way that organisations can actually work together and also the way in which accounting, management accounting, can actually be um, embedded within those processes. This kind of, um, uh, Michael uh, put some, some ideas up here in terms of the different, the new things that have, have developed, but I think it's about, in many senses, understanding issues around things like own book accounting, looking at issues around cost to serve, um, we talked about target costing, performance measurement, the balance scorecard in isolation, but how do we look across organisations in terms of the ways in which the, things like the balance scorecard can actually be used. And a particular area that um, I've been using for, from another study which was looking at reverse logistics uh, in the retail sector, one of the things that I've actually used in that particular project is something that was around in 1951. So actually in terms of, I'm just looking at Michael, in terms of the previous slide, you know, the, the things that have been around for some time, sometimes there might be value in revisiting some of those things. The, the, the area that I'm looking at is quality costing. And in fact, something like quality costing can be quite dynamic at the moment because one of the things you're doing is if you're looking across organisational boundaries, in many ways what you're trying to do is look at ways of avoiding costs or adding value through the processes across organisational boundaries. And quality costing, which is an old technique, started in 1951, was mentioned for the first time, I think, is actually quite a powerful technique at the moment because if we start to think about how do we avoid costs, how do we avoid cost to reduce failure costs within organisations and across organisational boundaries? We can both reduce costs and improve customer service. And in the reverse logistics area, we've actually done projects where, whereby by improving information to the, to the customer, and this was about using satellite navigation systems, you can actually reduce the, the actual cost of failure because people don't understand what they're about. You will reduce the cost of failure and you actually improve customer satisfaction at the same time. So I feel that inter-organisation accounting is something that we need to address for the future and look at ways in which organisations work together and can use accounting to support that. I'm particularly interested in that area, I think, in terms of the public service because, as I mentioned this morning, we're currently doing uh, a, a kind of programme with the Sheffield City region, you know, under the new... Uh, 
the new kind of um, organisational structures, you've now got city regions particularly, which have taken over from some of the development agencies. And in the Sheffield City Region programme, we're looking at, we're working with the police, the fire service, the council and the NHS. And the, the delegates have got together, and I think I mentioned this this morning, but they've come up with real ideas about how they could improve performance across the agencies. Now, one of the inhibiting factors there is they might come up with an idea which say, saves £400,000 by changing the way that the agencies work together, improves the client care for the people who actually engage with the agencies. But the problem is that the police service might spend another £200,000 whereas the council might save £600,000. So actually, across the piece, they've saved 400000 if I've done the math right, they've saved 400 k But the current uh, responsibility centres, the budgets are in each of the agencies. So how do you promote this inter-organisational working if the accounting systems at the moment with budgets in the police service, in the fire service, in the, um, in the NHS, in the council, actually act against what basically they're trying to achieve. So again, I think that's an interesting area in terms of where management and counting can go in the future. So finally, it's about looking at the way organisations develop new processes, etc., but recognise they don't work in isolation, and that's relevant for public sector, public service provision, private sector, you know, all of these kind of areas. Okay, thank you very much. Well, I think it was 43 years ago that uh, I was taught my first management accounting class by Mike Bromwich. And uh, I guess the main thing I... <laughs> the main thing I learned about uh, uh, management accounting uh, with Mike Bromwich was not to pay any attention to his titles. Uh, and so I took that uh, view uh, today. Uh, I'm not going to talk about shifting gears at all um, because I didn't know what it meant either. But what I thought I would talk about is some of the issues that, or some of the kind of uh, issues that I thought uh, arose um, from our sessions today and I thought uh, I would just raise a few, uh, a few issues. The first one was about uh, learning from cases. Um, we have had a series of uh, case studies effectively uh, in various degrees of detail. And uh, I think that uh, perhaps more, I, mean, I think that still we need to recognize both the strengths and weaknesses of case study work and case study research. Um, I think there's some disquieting evidence that suggests that uh, we learn more by looking at worst cases rather than best cases. Um, and the, there's very little incentive for managers or, uh, to uh, tell us very much about uh, when things go disastrously wrong or what systems fail or how things don't work out as expected. Um, but so I think that it's important and perhaps uh, academics have a particular role to play um, in trying to uh, offer a kind of skeptical view of um, of, research, of case research and trying to get beneath the surface of what sometimes can be uh, relatively kind of public relations type cases um, which uh, gloss over the detail and, and don't uh, and tell us more about what people's hopes 
were than what, uh, how practices work. So I think that um, it's worthwhile thinking about um, whether we can learn a lot more by looking at cases where things don't work well and where we're not focusing on best practice. The other thing I wanted to say is, um, and it's related, I guess, to this issue about uh, learning from bad pr practice, is the value of extreme cases. The, um, whereas a lot of uh, research is about looking at averages and looking at means, um, I think it's, uh, we can learn lo a lot more about um, uh, organizational life and we can learn also about the kind of ex the limits to our theories and understandings of how organizations and management accounting works by thinking about what happens at the extreme. So one of the things I just wanted to talk about here was uh, the, the issue of um, case studies and what is, uh, how we might proceed in learning more about how accounting works in practice. That, I think, also has uh, implications for something that uh, we heard at the beginning of the day more than uh, as the day has proceeded. But there's been this kind of uh, uh, issue about what does it mean to talk about relevant research. Um, and um, it's, uh, the question really is, to my mind, the relationship between a practice, manage, management accounting practice, or any other practice for that matter, and the role of the researcher. And here I think, again, that of course, that my comment about uh, looking at worst practices is, is uh, relevant here, but uh, my concern here is um, what is relevant type of research for practice? Is it about cheerleading? Is it about um, uh, uh, communicating or uh, uh, experiences elsewhere, or is it about asking awkward questions and being the cantankerous old bastard uh, that I so love to play? Um, and I would argue that um, sometimes the most helpful research is those, uh, that research that actually falls on uh, discomforted ears. So I would suggest that when we think about uh, relevant research, we should, also, we should think both about uh, being sceptical of claims made, but also I think um, trying to bring to bear and to show how theory is the most practical of activities. And that you know, for a long time I think um, uh, academics have kind of uh, uh, kind of coward at complaints that uh, academic work is too theoretical. The problem is that uh, we don't sell our theories as uh, persuasively as we need to uh, and that uh, practitioners need to know that there's nothing as practical as good theory and that looking at the literature would actually be very helpful to practitioners if they had the time to do so. Um, for example, to take one example where we are talking about uh, diffusion of ideas and the spread of management uh, ideas and how management accounting technologies travel, including within the healthcare sector. There is an enormous literature in this area. There is an enormous careful sets of studies about how TQM has diffused across all healthcare organisations, how um, various uh, ABC has diffused. Uh, it would be helpful for practitioners to know th of this literature. Now, it's not necessarily their fault that uh, a lot of this literature is written in a rather uh, arcane way. Uh, 
written for other academics. But it seems to me that if we are to teach, uh, uh, take seriously this call for relevant research, there are obligations on both sides to uh, both write in a way that is uh, understandable, but also to uh, be aware of and try and keep up to date with what has been written in research in, uh, in, in management accounting and in management more generally. So that, those were my uh, two broad points. I think those are sufficient to uh, get the ball rolling, and I'll pass it over. I have, a, I have a many other pages, but, you know, I don't have time. So. And that's another thing I learned from Mike Bromwich. Never pay attention to the time. Uh, you know, you just carry on, and things fall apart uh, in their own way. <laughs> As I never studied under Michael Bromwich, I don't think I'm quite, I'm not cantankerous, I'm, <laughs> anyway, um, just a comment about literature, it's a good thing, if I can read it, if I have the time, which is why I was delighted to see that paper written by two respected academics last summer in a way I could understand, and that says something to me about how people, SEMA, ICAW, other people that commission research are clear about what they want of those they commission and work with. So I think it's our, you're right, it is a two-way street, it's a shared responsibility, and I look forward to more stuff that I can really get my head around. Um, Michael asked us, as you said, to sort of spend a few minutes of uh, just talking about this, and I've taken quite a different steer on this from anybody else, not surprisingly. Um, just a general observation from life in general that we've noticed is that larger and longer-established organisations tend to be more sclerotic, more self-serving, less customer-focused, the smaller, younger organisations. It's something to do with age. And you know, the people in there, they sort of, the start turnover gets slower, the people get you know, more senior, they don't want to move on, their vested interests build up. They become more resistant to change. They often sort of reinforce their positions by introducing new rules about how things are supposed to operate around this place. MOD is a classic example, uh, but the NHS equally has its own shed load of rules which actually makes life more difficult for all concerned, except for the few that are there to, sort of, one could argue, protect. People become more you know, removed from reality. What tends to happen is that when any organisation becomes more removed from reality, there's an analogy which I quite like. It's like an elastic band. If reality is moving on like that and the organisation isn't, the elastic band is getting stretched and stretched and stretched. And what happens eventually? It breaks or you let go and it's painful. The organization either goes out of business or it has to catch up. It might mean a new chief executive, it might mean a takeover by another organization, it could be another hospital trust, for example. And all the certainties that you lived with for so many years suddenly get changed. So it's transformational change that can happen, and it's not necessarily pleasant, often it's strategic. And my contention is that if you have greater transparency about what is really happening in the organization, and this is what, to me, cost management is all about, it doesn't matter which technique you use, it actually helps to sort of make sure that, that sort of progress of, sort of becoming removed from reality doesn't happen or doesn't happen in quite the same measure. And let me just give you sort of a couple of examples. One is a friendly society. Now, if there was ever an oxymoron, that's one of them. Yeah? This friendly society, and we worked with them some little while ago, um, was governed by uh, the management group. To be on the management group, you had got there by being elected. 
the biggest single group of, uh, and this is the only people who could elect, weren't policyholders but members of staff. The largest single group of staff members was the sales force. So this is all salesmen. Once elected, you were elected once, you were there for life. You were required to work, however, two days a week. Um, so this is an attractive proposition. So you once you're there, you were there instantly dropped. Now, the uh, members of the uh, uh, management uh, group had no personal functional responsibilities whatsoever. They're the members of the management team. <coughs> um, they, uh, uh, each of them had uh, a, sort of a general manager to then had below them uh, an organization structure, the kind that we'd all recognize. Now these um, people, they were called the officials, um, the, sorry, the, sorry the, that was the management team. The only person that was uh, appointed was the secretary, and the secretary had the officials reporting to him. There were 27 officials. They never met as a management team. They only ever, ever met in the officials' dining room. And in the officials' dining room, there's just one rule. You don't talk about work, right? In the general managers had their dining room. They had the same rule. You don't talk about work. They never met as a management team. In the end, it took the secretary to, got, to get the turkeys for a vote for Christmas. Had they had even half-decent management information, then how badly they were performing, how little they were focused on the interests of their policyholders would have been absolutely transparent. Now, that organization has been through a massive transformation. It's now massively successful compared to how it used to be. But it took that fundamental economic shock. And if I look at the NHS, what I'm saying now is some trusts get it. They know what's needed. Good management accounting information of the kind that the regulator is talking about. Others are still struggling, and they probably always will. So it caused, you know, Michael's question has caused me to think about, well, what drives change? Well, clearly lots of things, and we could spend a whole day on it. But the economic shock is one such thing. And what the government is actually asking us all to do is go through just that, all sectors, not comfortable. It's also a thing that drives changes, a fundamental change in the rules of engagement, like the creation of Monitor as a regulator that didn't report through the Department of Health. Complete change to the rules of engagement. And so what I'm seeing here is a private sector that I think has been through so much change in the last two decades, actually it's more nimble and responsive than it's ever been before, and it's probably going to weather the storm better than one could maybe hope, but a public sector that is going to have a really tough time over the next two or three years. The techniques they use to address that actually don't matter, I think. Uh, it's about the will to change, and that's where it becomes a real management, a real leadership thing. So the tools and techniques by themselves are not enough. It's the leadership that goes with it that is critically important, because without that, nothing's going to change. Thank you. <laughs> Right. Um, now it's your turn. Um, either questions or comments, whichever you prefer. Um, if you have somebody in mind, please address the question to them. Um, and um, I'm sorry we haven't got as much time as all that, but that's quite deliberate because then that means you can ask, make the comments during tea break. So. Uh, if I may, uh, questions, views, one there, one there. Uh, Richard Lockledden uh, from King's College London. Um, I'm part of that cantankerous school of David, but I've never been taught by Michael. Um, but actually, I, I was, um, 
partly I think it's by John and uh, Sue in Peter's paper. There's a sense in which, um, and also by the title, I was also confused by the title, but it was, it's, it's the issue about the, the, the strength or the power of management accounting to bring about levels of change. And I guess it was sparked by the, the words stimulate and facilitate. And there's a sense in which there is a case, and there are many examples where accounting, or management accounting particularly, can actually stimulate or create real change. But I'm not sure that we, that happens all the time. And I think there is a sense in which it's very much more of a sort of subsidiary activity. And I just really would like to hear what the, uh, the views of the panel are in terms of uh, who's leading who in the process of transformation and change, um, and particularly with regard to the role of management accounting in that process. Should we take the other question as well and see if they can be, or, or, or quotate, whatever, and see if they can be combined together? Down here. Uh, there's a possibility. Uh, Rick Payne from ICAW. Um, I was very interested in the idea of um, looking at failure because I think that's, that's absolutely right that we can learn a lot from it. I'm um, also interested in when bad practice, or what we might call bad practice, works. We see headcount freezes as a very common way of cost control. Um, I think people would say, well, that's bad practice, it's salami slicing, it's not targeted and so on, yet we still continue to see it happening a lot. And I wonder if in practice it does actually work quite often to achieve the goals of the organisation. Um, you may have to point the microphone at you. <laughs> I've had, I've had experience of both um, failure and bad practice. Um, <laughs> um, salami slicing does work. Um, it's just like wearing shoes that are too small for you. That works too. You just walk uncomfortably for quite a while, and then you get big ones when you can afford them. Um, salami slicing you do in the absence of better information, and a lot of what Robin's talking about there is having better information. Um, so that's very important. Uh, to the question as to the role that management accountants can play, in reality, 40% of the people in any finance function are likely to be working on what we might call accounting operations. They make sure we pay the people that we have to pay, that we get paid by the people who are supposed to pay us, that we keep records, and that we produce reports from time to time. And thereafter, it's only maybe 10, 15% of people in the finance function are on what might be called uh, planning and control type roles. And even there, they may be calling them that, where they're actually doing it is another thing. So some of the things we talk about in terms of finance taking on a more um, influential role in the business is quite aspirational for many of our, our members, and I'm sure even for ICAW members. But we do know that um, companies and leading organizations, and I was talking to some people here today from Imperial Tobacco and from Shell, that these are very important roles, and they are doing these things. They are having this influence in the business. <coughs> Uh, just, just picking up on Richard's uh, comment about the, our particular presentation this morning around um, st st stimulate or facilitate. I think with regard to the um, with regard to the foundation unit, I mean our view in a sense, and that we chatted to Richard about this at, at lunchtime. But our view in a sense is that the key driver in that particular foundation unit design, as such, w w was the kind of finance officer. So we we felt very much. 
that the finance officer was stimulating that change. Um, it is fair to say, though, that you can stimulate the change, you can change the accountability structure, but in reality it needs very much the clinician to engage and, 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 and engage with that process. So we did, we did kind of have a, a view that one was stimulate and one was about facilitate, when in the second place that the, the, uh, the actual, um, in the enteral feeding it was the, 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 uh, the clinical person who was driving change. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel that, you know, it is an interesting issue, this about stimulation and facilitation. And I actually thought that that was quite a neat way of, of trying to understand what was happening. Uh, but it is very much that the clinician have to embed themselves within this process, else it won't happen. And, and it may be, you know, that, that that's an area that we need to consider and reflect on further in this in our particular case. David? Of course, I was uh, um, being deliberately provocative and uh, want to just kind of clarify this issue about uh, um, learning from cases and uh, what, what we might mean here. Because um, one of the things that uh, is, uh, was unstated in my state, uh, statement was you know, relevant to whom and uh, success or failure for whom. And I think that uh, we need to pay more attention to uh, the groups and uh, parties that uh, we're thinking about when we talk about uh, innovation or talking about uh, cost reduction or cost management. Uh, who bears the costs and where, do, where these uh, come from? So I was uh, quite... Um, uh, intrigued by some of the observations that uh, were being made in the uh, case uh, where we learnt about some of the, some of the Chinese uh, organisations, where there were some uh, uh, at least gestures or mention of uh, concern about uh, employee involvement as well as customers and so on, whereas what I hear uh, rather kind of... Um, uh, nervously from in when we hear the stories in the NHS is we have this kind of we have these kind of vague statements about value um, value for whom uh, I am conscious of the fact that um, you know, we were talk they were talking about uh, operational effectiveness and qu clinical quality and uh, Robin made the comment about the, you know, the the large extent of blue blue in the clinical quality uh, one wonders whether the blue in the clinical quality is because we have so little blue in some of the other areas, in the financial or operational, financial performance or operational effect effectiveness. So it seems to me that uh, when I say we can learn from failure and we can learn from ineffective organizations, it also does beg the question, what is a failure and what is, uh, what is effective and what is ineffective? Who we're, uh, who we're kind of doing our work for and um, whether we, we, particularly now I talk as uh, researchers, whether we are doing our work just for senior management and in terms of shareholder value or as Mike kind of rather kind of cynically said, uh, maybe we need to call that stakeholders now. Um, but, um, you know, there is a question really about... Uh, you know, to whom are we trying to be relevant? What does it mean? What are relevant outcomes? How would we assess success or failure of any particular organizational innovation? 
And I do remember and uh, was involved 25 years ago in doing research in the NHS when I lived in the UK, um, have seen attempts to introduce DRG costing and uh, uh, ABC, embryonic type ABCC costing there, where the kind of clinicians just said this was kind of um, joke information basically and really didn't take it very seriously. That didn't necessarily mean that patient outcomes were uh, affected negatively by that uh, kind of reaction, that they would not be contaminated by cost information. Interesting. Robin? Tempted. Right. <laughs> no, seriously, I'll give you an anecdote. One particular trust we're working at. Do you want to stand up so that they yeah, can sorry, see you? Sorry, right. If you're going to try and Right. One particular trust we're working at. Getting cost information down to the patient level this year, and being able to compare performance between different clinicians, one bit of information that came out was the fact that, you know, like for like comparison, you had two clinicians working in roughly the same broad area. All their patients had a reasonably good outcome, so there's nothing, you know, no bad performance from that point of view. But one was a lot more expensive in terms of uh, how they operated uh, than the other. And they got the clinicians together and they discovered, for example, that one clinician, he insisted every time he did an operation, he opened a brand new set of operating gloves. These were like the Rolls Royce operating gloves, they're double skin, they cost well over £150 a pair. The other guy was using kitchen gloves. Now, I'm joking, but you know, it's much, much cheaper alternatives. And it sparked a debate between the clinicians, right, about, uh, you know, do you actually need to spend that amount of money on the new set of gloves every time? Because if you didn't, we could actually have enough money to buy this new bit of kit over here. So it begins to inform sort of positive debate within the organisation. I have my rant and I'll stop now. I, one of the things we talk about cost management we, that nobody's mentioned so far is risk management. To me, risk management and cost management are two sides of exactly the same coin. So when you talk about salami slicing, does it work? Well, yes, but what's really happening is you're forcing prioritization into the department that's being salami sliced. And people make their own local judgments. They'll stop doing certain things, they'll cut back on other things, and you know, where there is some surplus and spare and so on, then yes, they'll save some money. But there will come a point where they start taking risks because they've got no choice. So does it work? It is a valid option. And in some organisations, if you haven't done cost reduction for a long time, it may well be the right thing to do. But there comes a point where it delivers reducing returns. Um, Rotherham, I had a question. I was interested in what you said about the role of the finance director there. My question would be is this, is that sort of if Monitor were not driving service line reporting, and bear in mind that Monitor is a foundation trust, it's one of the first waves that qualified, would that trust still have actually been going down the same route? I'm not sure. I would like to think they would, because it's the right thing to do. But what was the role of the monitor, uh, regulator, in that sort of um, process? I'd be quite interested to find out. I'll stop there. Okay. Do you want to just say a word? Just, just very quickly, because I know Mark, I want to take extra questions. But just in response to David, I mean, I think one of the key issues in the, the Rotherham example we gave was that the clinical outcomes. The, you know, who are we doing the research for? The clinical outcomes were from the work done by the, uh, you know, the, the, the clinicians there were, were very positive in terms of, you know, the NHS serving the, the patient, the, the clinical outcomes were very positive. In terms of the, uh, the question by Robin, yeah, I mean, in terms of context, you know, there were these external factors and, and I introduced those at the beginning. So obviously things like PBR, et cetera, et cetera, were external factors. Um, but as you said, you know, there are external factors facing lots of people and it is about how you then deal with those external Indeed. factors, which I think is important. 
Right. Some more wisdom? Any, uh, a couple more requests for wisdom from the panel? Would I have some wisdom? Don't do this kind of thing. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> so happens in my box this morning arrived a paper by Lisa Curran Mackey and Peter Miller of the LSE on the failure of a failure regime from insolvency to deauthorization of NHS foundation trusts. So there is a study on what happens at the other end when people impose. And what did your quick reading of it no, say? I haven't read it yet. Anybody <laughs> <laughs> else oh, that, like to read bold, it? that was vulgar. <laughs> what I was going to ask, and this is a very silly question. <clears throat> We've had, I don't know, 20 years of new public management and bringing in private sector ideas to the public sector. Will we ever get to the stage, maybe are we even there now, when there will be the new private sector management, which says there are actually a lot of things to learn from how these impossible public organisations manage to succeed, in some senses, very well in doing the job they're supposed to do of delivering patient care, education, fire service, whatever it is. Are there any lessons the other way about management? One uh, historical piece, a piece of historical evidence. I think that many uh, management accounting innovations actually have taken, started in the, pro, in the public sector. Um, the most obvious is the idea of budgeting. Um, budgeting, which, as I understand it, uh, and this is partly Peter Miller's work uh, on uh, uh, budgeting in the French state after the, French, uh, after the revolution, 1789, and then. Um, also how French ideas influence the American Constitution and the requirement for budgeting in government, which then didn't come to the private sector until typically the interwar years or even up, uh, in Britain often after the Second World War. So it's not the case that uh, it's the, the, the beautiful sister is the private sector and the ugly sister is in the public sector, um, which is often the way it's presented. And uh, when I was doing that, some of that work uh, in the NHS 25 years ago, uh, it did strike, strike me that a lot of the uh, attempted innovations in ABC were being tried in, uh, in healthcare and in, in the NHS, um, not necessarily successfully, and partly it, it was an issue of data capture and quality of data input, and I think that has been the kind of Achilles heel of most ABC type systems. This is you know, across lots of different organizations. Um, so I, I've never been very comfortable about this kind of ugly sister, beautiful sister depiction of the relationship between the public and the private sector. Um, and I don't think historical evidence really supports that, uh, that, that kind of vision, which itself is part of the debate, or, or part of the discourse of new public management which, you know, it's indeed in some ways the integ an integral part of the idea of new public management was the private sector is all about where the good ideas and where the kind of innovation and creativity and thoughtfulness and the public sector was all about sloth and, uh, uh, you know, and salami cutting or whatever, yeah. Right. Uh, the time is very near four o'clock. Um, therefore, I'd like to thank the panel.
Don't forget, you can carry on asking them anything you like at tea time. Uh, so, if I may, thank the panel. And can I, this is an, an appropriate time to thank our sponsors. Uh, I think we've done that all through, but I think this is the appropriate time to thank our sponsors, especially as, as far as I can see, neither of the fund holders are here. Yes, you're here, but, we're, you know. Um, yeah, all right. Some of the fund holders are here. So if I may thank, in alphabetical order, SEMA and the ICAW for sponsoring this and sponsoring it now for well over 30 years. Thank you very much indeed.